0: let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much again for your word and what that word is for us. Your word is life because it points to you. Father, I ask this morning as we dig into your word that you will draw us close to you, that you will speak clearly to us and help us to understand you. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Uh, So we're continuing our summer sermon series in Zephaniah and we are in, well, let's see, click, click, maybe. Oh, it helps if I turn it on. There we go. Uh, we are in week seven of our eight week series of Zephaniah. Uh, so we have one more sermon in this series. <clears throat> but uh, if you are in your Bible, you can go ahead and open to Zephaniah. It's a few pages before Matthew. If you're using your phone on your device, or your, if you're using your Bible on your device, you can go ahead and turn that on and go to Zephaniah. We are in chapter three, and we're going to go through verses six to eight. And this morning it is a summary of God's judgment. It looks like I forgot to um, update that slide again. So. Uh, The main point this week is that that we need to heed God's warning. We need to heed God's warning. And that the the people in Judah, the Judaites, need to heed God's warning. And those three sub-points there are we need to look to God's past judgment as a warning. We need to repent from sins and that the day of the Lord is coming. Like I said, this is number seven of an eight-part series. That means that we've been in Zephaniah now for almost two full months, uh, going all the way back to the beginning of June, and we'll finish this series next week uh, in the final Sunday of July. What that means is it's a good time for us to review. All right. This passage just so happens to be a great place to review what has happened so far uh, in Zephaniah before we get to the conclusion of this book. Now, what I've said this whole time is that throughout the book of Zephaniah, we see two recurring themes. And those two recurring themes are that Zephaniah shows God's judgment when people fail to keep him as their only God. And the second recurring theme is that Zephaniah shows God's call to repentance. Those who repent and humbly call out to Him will be saved and restored instead of judged. All right, so we'll go ahead and get into verse 6. It says, I have cut off the nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste to their streets. With no one to pass through, their cities lie devastated, without a person, without an inhabitant. So in our Bible study methodology, One of the questions that we ask is, how does this passage point to the gospel? Now, when we look closely, we see that Zephaniah's prophecy offers a parallel to the gospel. So real quick, let me give you a summary of the gospel. I like to use the three circles presentation. It starts with God's design. See, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that we see. God created all of this to reflect his glory he created us to be in perfect relationship with him and to be in perfect relationship with each other and in perfect relationship with the rest of creation. But because of sin, we're no longer in God's design. We're no longer living according to God's design. That sin is time we don't follow God's will in our life. It can be sins of um, commission. These are when we are doing things that God has told us not to do. They can be sins of omission, It's when we are not doing things that God has told us to do or sins of cognition when we are having sinful thoughts like lust or envy. Now that sin takes us out of God's design but it also leads us to a place of brokenness. We see brokenness all around us. One of the most obvious places we see brokenness is in our relationships and the relationships that we have with one another and we see broken relationships time and time and time again, over and over and over again. These broken relationships are a result of sin. But it's not just our relationships with each other that's broken, it's our relationship with with God that's broken as well. People try all sorts of different things to fix this brokenness in their life. They can try to dig deeper into their work and find satisfaction in their work. That's just going to lead to more brokenness. People try to fix their families and spend all this time with their families and, and make everything right in their families but that's only going to lead to more brokenness. Those are both good things. Work and family are good things, but on their own, it's only going to lead us to more brokenness. Now, Sometimes people feel this brokenness and they, they just give up and they don't know how to deal with the brokenness, so, so they'll turn to drugs or alcohol to try to hide the pain of that brokenness or maybe to try to elevate beyond that feeling of brokenness, but that's just going to lead to more brokenness. So God Reached down in his love, and he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins. Because he loves us, he sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for our sins. When we repent from our sins and believe in him, then we can recover and pursue God's design in our life. When we believe in the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, and not just a factual historical belief, but a belief that leads to worship. When we believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on, Jer- uh, in, uh, on the cross in Jerusalem, then we can recover and pursue God's design in our life. How does that look? How does that look when we're pursuing God's design in our life? Well, first, that is to try to, uh, or, sorry, first, that is to focus on our relationship with God. We do that through prayer, we do that through reading our Bible, we do that through living in community with other believers and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us to make us more like Jesus. The same way that we work on the relationships with each other. Remember, God's, in God's design, we are in perfect relationship with the Father. or We are in perfect relationship with God. We are in perfect relationship with each other. And so part of being in God's design is being in a body of believers, being a member of a body of believers who are holding each other accountable to growing towards sanctification, to growing towards God. That's what church membership is about, being a member of a body of believers as we are trying to uh, help each other to grow uh, into more mature disciples. So that is a summary of the gospel. Maybe not so much of a summary, but maybe a, more of a detailed layout of the, of the gospel. But we see that Zephaniah's prophecy is a mirror of this gospel. We see the sin in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 13. This was God's judgment against Judah. And he was calling them out for their idolatry, and their paganism, and their false religion. These are the the various acts that they were performing in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, but they weren't actually worshipping Yahweh. It was a false religion. And we see the brokenness. The brokenness comes in in chapter 1, verses 4 to 18. This was the day of the Lord's judgment. and This was death and destruction and ultimately God's wrath being poured out on Judah, and specifically Jerusalem. But God called them to repent. And the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1, maybe, there we go, Beginning of chapter two, verses one through three, God called them to repentance. And this was, he was telling them to seek righteousness, to seek Yahweh and to seek humility. Now, failure to repent leads to more brokenness. And we saw that in the end of chapter two and going in so far into verse, or chapter three. So two, four through 15 was the judgment against the nations. That's more brokenness. Chapter three, verses one through five was a repeated judgment against Judah. So again, that's more brokenness and then three, six through eight, that's our sermon today. And this is a summary of God's judgment. We will see uh, at the end of the sermon where the rest of the gospel story fits into this. But for right now, I want you to see that so far, Zephaniah is pointing to the gospel. He's calling them out for their brokenness. He's calling them out for their sin and telling them to to turn their lives back to God, to call out to God uh, for repent, or to seek God in repentance and to call out to him in humility. So in this passage though, In this passage, notice that God is speaking in the past tense. He says, I have cut off nations. This has already happened. I have laid waste to their streets. Their cities lie devastated. So he's speaking in the past tense. This is something that has already happened. So God is telling the residents of Judah that they should uh, should look to other nations around them and see the judgment that God has poured out on those nations as an example, as a warning for them. And so let's talk a little bit here um, about the, the, the history leading up to this point. So the kingdom of Israel, a lot of us know that that started with King Saul. And King Saul had a lot of really good qualities, made him a really good leader, but he went a little bit crazy there towards the end. And he started to do things in God's name that God didn't tell him to do. And so God said, or God cut the line off with Saul and put David in his place. And Saul responded with anger and jealousy. But David came up as the next king for Israel. Now David was a good king. He's described as being a man after God's own heart. That does not mean that he was perfect because David had a very, very big, public, uh, everybody saw this sin. This was a sin that he had with Bathsheba. And he, um, basically, he was up in the castle and, and... is, the way the Bible describes it is it was a time that when the kings go off to war, in the spring when kings go off to war. So David should have been off fighting in the war with his soldiers instead of being back at home, just kind of lounging around. But he's in the castle, and he looks over, and he sees Bathsheba, and she's bathing on the on the rooftop. And he sees her, and he says, you know what? I like what I see. And so he takes her, and he has some extramarital affairs with her, and... Because of that, he takes and he basically arranges for her husband to be killed. God looks at this and he says, You know what, David? You are a man after my own heart, but this sin cannot go unpunished. And because of this sin, God tells David that he's going to split the kingdom. And so David dies and his son Solomon takes the throne. And Solomon has a, a time of relative peace and it grows the kingdom of Israel to be the largest in history. That, that from what we can tell reading through records, Solomon led the kingdom of Israel to be very large and very wealthy. But after Solomon died, his sons couldn't agree on who was going to take the throne. And so the nation was split. Now this is in the punishment for David's sin. So the nation is split. You have the northern nation, which keeps the name of Israel, and the southern nation, which takes the name of Judah. All right? Now, the northern kingdom was plagued by evil kings who led the Israelites away from God and into idolatry and syncretism and apostasy. And For this reason, God, through the Assyrians, destroyed Israel, and he killed most of the residents, and the ones who were left he sent into exile, into Assyria. Now, the southern kingdom, Judah, had several kings who are described as doing right in the sight of the Lord, meaning that they sought after God, that they sought the idols in their nation not to worship them, but to destroy them. These kings were trying to lead the nation back to worship with God or back to worshiping God. However, the southern nation also had several kings who are described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So they were leading the nation into idolatry and syncretism, and apostasy, just like the northern kingdom, just like Israel. Judah was following that same path. But God says to Judah, He says, look at Israel. Look at this northern kingdom. I have destroyed them because they were not worshiping me. Look to their punishment. Look to my wrath as a warning. Turn away from that. You're heading down that same path of destruction and turn away from that and worship me. Unfortunately, they didn't listen. And so we get to see that in the next verse. In verse uh, chapter 3, verse 7, it says, I thought you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. So God is using Israel as a warning for Judah. God is saying to the Judaites, look to Israel. Look at the reward for their sin. Your, your path is leading you in that same direction. To that same punishment. That they received. So we think, okay, well, is there any modern application to this? Yes, absolutely, there is. See, last week I talked about discipline on an individual level. God disciplines us as individuals, yes, but God does not only discipline us as individuals. God disciplines us as a group. God disciplines bodies of believers as a group. So let me be clear here. I am talking about local churches, not the global church, right? Jesus says that the gates of hell will not overpower the church. That means that the church will last until Jesus comes back. That promise does not go out to individual bodies of churches, though. We know that the church is God's plan for preaching salvation through the gospel to a lost and dying world. The church, in a global sense, is not going away. But if we're talking about local churches, that might be a different story. So, what defines a local church? You ask a lot of people how to, uh, to define church, you're going to get a lot of different answers. Some of them might be really good answers, some of them maybe not so much. Right? So as I was trying to put together a, a definition of church in you know, all my research and everything, I found a definition I thought was pretty good, it was from the International Mission Board, um, the International, or IMB, the International Mission Board says a church is... A New Testament church is a group of believers in Jesus Christ who assemble together regularly and who are committed to one another and uh, to be the body of Christ together. So notice that the church is a group of people. Churches can undergo discipline from God. And if they fail to repent, I think eventually they will have to close the doors. So why would a church need to repent? Right? <clears throat> we are attracted to the same sins that Judah was. We are attracted to those exact same sins that Israel was punished for. We're attracted to the same sins that Judah was punished for: idolatry, syncretism, and apostasy. So, what could or how could idolatry sneak its way into the church? Well, we see it all the time. You know, the order of the service can become an idol for some people. The time of service can become an idol for some people. and you know, church has to be Sunday morning. Some. We'd even say church has to be 11 o'clock on Sunday morning or 10.30 on Sunday morning or, or whatever time. That can become an idol for some people. Is the time of the worship service. Certain programs that the church does can become an idol for some people. Or money can become an idol. The church's money can become an idol in that we need to use the money in this way instead of seeking after God and seeing how he wants to use the money. Or tradition can become an idol. All right, what about syncretism? How can syncretism sneak its way into the church? Well, I think... We see that a lot with the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that if you are a strong enough believer, if you have enough faith, and if you are good enough, then God is going to bless you with all this good stuff. Well, we don't see that in the Bible. Our actions and the way that we behave do not necessarily indicate or dictate what God gives to us. God is a perfect and loving father, and he wants to give his children good things. So when we see people saying that, well, you're being punished because of X, Y, Z. Well, yes, God does discipline, but we can't always say that whatever bad is happening in your life is because you're being punished by God. Or we can't say that necessarily because this great thing happened to me. I'm being blessed by God because I am so good and, and I'm so moral. No, when we look at the gospel, we know that we are sinful. Down to our very core, we are sinful. I've heard it said that if sin was blue, we would all be Smurfs. Because we are sinful to our core. But the gospel comes out and says that God loves us anyway. So the blessings that God pours out on us, is not, it's not because of uh, how good we are or how moral we are, but it's because he loves us. So I think the American dream and prosperity gospel, those are ways that syncretism can sneak into the church or believing in horoscopes or karma. I hear a lot of church people talk about karma. <clears throat> Let me be very clear about this. Karma goes against the gospel. The gospel is greater than karma, and karma goes against the gospel, all right? Because karma says that if I'm good, then good things will happen to me. If I'm bad, then bad things will happen to me. Or if you're bad, then bad things will happen to you. And if you're good, then good things will happen to you. But we see in the Bible where it says that God will bless those who he chooses. Plain as that. God will bless those who He chooses, not because of their actions or because of their behavior. <clears throat> we also read in the Bible that as strong believers, we should expect punishment from. We should expect not punishment, um, persecution from the world. When we go out and we share the gospel with others, when we go out and we live a gospel life, when we live a life that reflects God's glory, God, God, that reflects God's glory, we should expect persecution from the world around us. That's not what karma says. Karma says if you're good enough then you'll do good. Eventually if you're good enough then you're gonna escape this horrible circle of life and be ejected from life into the great union. That's that's not the gospel. The gospel says that I am sinful, I deserve hell, but God because he loved me stepped in and took that punishment for me. He drank that cup dry and gives me his righteousness. That's what the gospel is. But when you hear Christians talking about karma, I think that's syncretism sneaking into the church. What about apostasy? Could apostasy really sneak its way into the church? Absolutely. I think so, absolutely. We, when I first got here, we went through a book called um, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And I think when we look at a lot of the actions that the churches that are described in that book, when we look at what those churches were doing, I think they were going through the motions. They weren't going and they weren't worshiping God as a body of believers. There may have been individuals there. But as a church, I don't think that they were worshiping God. They were just going through the motions. And because of that, those churches have had to close their doors. Now, when we look as a church, when we look at those examples we see them as a warning. That's why we read that book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. We read it as a warning. What can we do to avoid that same path? In these cases, we must remember that the point of God's discipline is to repent from sins and to place our faith in Jesus. See, the Judaites failed to repent, and we get to see the the result, and it's warned in the next verse. The next verse, verse 8, says, therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms in order to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. See, globally throughout the history or globally throughout history, mankind has always struggled with the possibility that we're all going to be destroyed or at least most of us will be killed off, and there might be a few people remaining. This is called apocalypse, right? It's been a very popular theme in movies. Well, not just movies nowadays, but going back through uh, through historical literature, it's been a very popular theme. So in movies, there may be a lot of different causes for this destruction. One of my favorite all-time movies is Armageddon with Bruce Willis, right? In Armageddon, it was a giant meteor, that was coming to destroy humanity. But thanks to humanity that we have Bruce Willis to save the day, right? In the day after tomorrow, right, it was weather that was going to cause this massive apocalypse. In contagion, it was disease. It was gonna cause all these people to die off. In Independence Day, it was aliens, but then again, thank goodness we have Will Smith, you know? In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I I refer to Marvel movies a lot because that's a huge movie enterprise right now. In the MCU, in uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, you see Tony Stark was trying to avoid that same thing. He was trying to avoid destruction by aliens so he created Ultron. And eventually, Ultron looked at the human race and said, no, you're not good enough. I'm gonna destroy you anyway. So we see that technology was the enemy in Age of Ultron. That's a pretty popular theme, too, that technology is eventually going to lead to our destruction. That's iRobot, Terminator, Matrix, I Am Legend, 28 Days Later. That's all because of technology leading us to our destruction. That theme, though, that we as humans are going to be destroyed, that's been very popular throughout history. But it, it didn't start with secular writers. It didn't start with people of the world looking out and saying that there's going to be some destruction. It started from God. In the Bible, it talks so much about the end of the world that they have their own literary genre. It's called uh, um, apocalyptic literature. And I've put some of these uh, references on the board for you. All of these are large sections of apocalyptic literature. This is where God is warning about the end of the earth or the end of the world as we know it. Gosh, that sounds like a song. Right, The end of the world as we know it. So we have several in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really fam- A lot of the Old Testament prophets, really one of their major themes is apocalypse. In the New, in the New Testament, we see that as well. Now, I think we could also add this passage to this list. See, God warns several times about the destruction of the earth, but there's a major difference between popular movies and, and popular literature. There's a major difference between those and what the Bible says. And see in popular movies and literature it's always some hero who rises out from among humans who's going to save us from them all you know it might be the avengers or it might be will smith i think there was four or five different will smith movies that i named there maybe he's got some savior complex going on i don't know but we (laughs) there are in in the movies there are so many different ways that we as humans come to the rescue but in the bible that's not we are not the rescuer In the Bible, Jesus is the rescuer. In all these different apocalyptic literature references that we read, it's always, come back to God. Seek God, seek Yahweh through Jesus. That's how we avoid this destruction. You see, God warns several times about the destruction of the earth. We know the cause. It's not technology, it's not weather, It's not disease. It's not zombies. The cause of of destruction is sin. We know the destroyer, and that destroyer is God. But in this case, the destroyer is not the enemy. See, God comes out, he says, God comes out to pour his indignation on the earth. But the purpose is for establishing a new heaven and a new earth, where those who have believed in him and call out to him for salvation through Jesus can live for eternity in perfect relationship with him. And see, he's already called them to repent and believe in him. But this is, he's pointing to that, uh, he's pointing to recovering and pursuing God's design through that new heaven and new earth. It's about recovering God's design. We see this in the end of the chapter. I'm giving you a little preview for next week. The end of the, uh, the, end of the book talks about recovering God's design. It's the restoration of the faithful. And then in verses 17 to 20, specifically, it says, the Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. That's Jesus. Jesus came. He left his place in heaven to come and to live among us, to live the life of a human. He felt the temptation that we felt, that temptation towards sin. He poured out his power from heaven, and he come to live as a weak and humble human so that he could know the struggle that we have. So that he can feel the pain that we feel, he can feel the hunger that we feel when your preacher might get a little too long-winded. He knows that pain. He knows your struggles. He came to live here so that he could know our struggle. But we fall in sin, and he did not. He lived a perfect life. Even though he felt the temptation to sin, he did not sin. He led a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. And because he is God, because he loves us, he stepped up to the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And when we place our faith in him, then we are free to recover and pursue God's design in our life. So we've come to our application point, or application points. Again, it's broken down into three, point, or three parts, knowing, being, and doing. First, know that there is hope in Jesus. Yes, God will punish sin, but Jesus has already taken that punishment, if you will just let him. He received God's wrath on the cross so that by repentance and faith in him, our relationship with God can be restored. Second being, be a defender of this church body. Be a defender of this body of believers. See, if Judah had had more people like Zephaniah step up or more people like King Josiah to step up and say, no, this is not what we are supposed to do. We are not supposed to chase after idols, but we are supposed to seek after God. We are supposed to seek him in our lives daily. Then they may not have fell under God's wrath. Be a defender of this church body to say, as a body of believers, we are going to live by the gospel. We're going to live by Jesus' commands. As a body of believers, we're going to hold each other accountable to applying the Bible to our lives. And finally, doing. Share this message. See, God called Zephaniah to deliver this message of repentance to Judah. And Judah, or sorry, uh, Zephaniah delivered the message. God has called each and every one of you to deliver his message of salvation to those around you. Now, I'm not saying that we're all prophets in here, but God has called us all to be his messengers, to take the gospel to those around us. Will you respond to that call like Zephaniah did? Will you defend this church like Zephaniah tried to defend his people? Will you place your hope in Jesus? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word and the truth that is in your word. God, I pray that this message this morning will turn our hearts towards you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I've heard it said that the gospel is not the diving board that gets you into a relationship with God, but it is the pool that we swim in every day. The gospel is the pool that we swim in every day. It encompasses us all around. If you are not dripping with the gospel, then you need to repent. And I think each and every one of us has to come to a point of repentance every day. So we've come to our point of response, and you can pray at the cross. You can come and pray with me, or you can pray with your seated, or where you're seated. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning.